Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, the chapter of Christian liberty in the epistle to the Romans. Romans roads don't typically include Romans 14 because it's a subject that's a little different than uh, the first 11 chapters of the epistle, but it is nonetheless something important for the church at Rome, and it was important for the church at Corinth because the apostles spent a couple chapters on the matter there. But here we come to Romans chapter 14, and let's see if we can cover the first four verses in the time allotted to us for this assembly. Let me read to you Romans 14, 1 through 4. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another, who is weak, eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Amen and amen. amen. Thank you, Lord, for the subject of Christian liberty. Teach us, by your Spirit and by your Word, the things that we ought to learn from this chapter and our consideration of it. This is the subject of Christian liberty. What we mean by Christian liberty is not a political concept, But it is a doctrine of how we get along with each other coming from all different kinds of backgrounds. Every family does things differently. Every family has different family traditions, different family habits. Everyone that comes and joins our church has had a different set of pastors, preachers, teachers, parents, Sunday school teachers, and other influences in their past. So they arrive here with a lot of baggage. And we arrived here with a lot of baggage, and that baggage being all the things that we have been taught in the way of traditions, habits, what's valuable, what's important, how we ought to do this, how we ought not to do that, how we ought to live, and so forth, things that the Lord hasn't addressed in the Bible. And while we hold them dear as individuals, and while we want to communicate them to our children, if we consider them important, everyone has different important things they want to convey to their children, and we've got to learn how to get along with each other. And so the apostle gave us Romans 14 to help us do that. Christian liberty is the freedom for each Christian to do as he will in things that God hasn't addressed and doesn't care about. If God hasn't addressed a matter and hasn't addressed it plainly, expressly, in the Word of God, then He doesn't care about it. He doesn't care what you do. And we want to defend those that do Some things, and others don't. If a man takes a position on one side of a subject, we're going to defend that man as long as he keeps it to himself. Because Romans chapter 14 is going to say, if you have faith in doing something, verse 22, have it to thyself before God. Because we don't want to hear about it. We don't care what you do, and we don't care what you think, and you don't care what I do or what I think in matters of Christian liberty, though if there's anyone that ought to have a little bit of influence in matters of Christian liberty, it ought to be the pastor, because it says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 that you ought to follow his faith. But uh, you're not going to hear me stressing that at all in the study of this subject. Christian liberty is your freedom. Christian liberty is your liberty, your individual freedom to do as you will in things that God hasn't addressed. If God's addressed something, we keep His commandments and we avoid anything He has condemned. If God hasn't either commanded it or condemned it, then it's a take-it-or-leave-it matter and He doesn't care. Unless your conscience is involved in the matter. As soon as your conscience gets involved in the matter, then it becomes a matter of importance to you because your conscience is the candle of the Lord, as the book of Proverbs teaches us. And so the Lord put that there and for you, it becomes a matter of righteousness or sin. If your conscience believes something is wrong, but God hasn't said that it's wrong, and everyone else in the church is doing it, and you do it, you've sinned. And it's an equal sin to any other sin. Because in your mind and in your conscience, God doesn't want you to do it, but you went and did it anyway. And so it becomes a matter of sin. 
And let's say that you are, commit, you are convicted in your conscience to do something, and no one else in the church does it, but you're convicted you ought to do it for the Lord's sake. If you don't do it to go along with them, and your conscience is telling you to do it, then you've sinned again against the Lord. Because our consciences are powerful. Right. Powerful in the sight of God. The Lord wants us to follow our consciences in these matters of indifference until our consciences are educated by the Word of God for us to realize, oh, the Lord didn't care about that matter. You know, the only reason I cared about it is because of that Sunday school teacher I had between the ages of seven and nine. And there we go. You know, we're outside the Bible and we're on the influence of someone. It could be a grandfather. It could be an aunt. It could be a parent. It could be a Sunday school teacher or something from our past. And for anyone listening to this sermon, we don't have a Sunday school and we don't have Sunday school teachers. I am referring to people that come to us and join us that had such influences in their past as I did. Christian liberty. You know, in the past, theologians and commentators have called this dealing with things indifferent. You know, when we find a person that's indifferent, that means they don't care. And And there are things in the Bible that are indifferent because God doesn't care. And theologians and commentators have referred to it as things indifferent and scruples. A scruple is when you worry or fuss about a thing indifferent. You have scruples about doing that. Well, I just don't know if I should touch that. I just don't know if I should do that. And so you've got scruples. That's their word. I'm not going to probably refer to that word again. But if you were to read commentaries, they've all understood Romans 14 since the apostle penned it. And they've had to teach on it as well. And in every generation, the things that afflict Christians are a little different from previous generations. But uh, it's having scruples about things indifferent. That is, fussing and worrying about things that God doesn't care about. You can follow your conscience anywhere you wish, as long as you don't violate God's commandments or set up a standard for other people. That's really what we're talking about with Christian liberty. If there's an issue in the church and you follow the Bible pattern for it, and the Bible rules for that matter of Christian liberty, and you don't do it, and then there are others that do do it, and they follow the Bible rules for Christian liberty as well, I'm going to defend both sides. I'm going to defend both sides, God helping me as vigorously as any other side, though at times there might be some preaching that sounds like I'm trying to undo one side because I've got to preach the Word of God. And the Word of God is going to undo one side or the other a little bit because... It's not addressed by God, but God does address certain things. And we're going to find out by looking in Romans chapter 14 that the Word of God had addressed these issues in a sense that they were no longer matters of importance to Him, and yet the Jews couldn't let go of them because their mommy and daddy had done it, and their granddaddy and grandmommy had done it, and all the way back for about, well, 1,500 years in some of the things, or a 1,000 years at least in some of the other things. Mount Sinai was 1,500 years before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those Jews had 1,500 years of biblical tradition, and yet it's those biblical traditions that Paul just blew off. And do you know who the weak people were? The Jews. Because they were still being superstitious about their kosher laws, still superstitious about idols, and still superstitious about ridiculous things like Passover days. Uh Uh-huh. That was now a ridiculous thing, and it was a weak Christian that would still be wanting to keep something like the Passover when Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the Passover. And so especially during this 40-year period of transition, the time of Reformation from John the Baptist in 30 A.D. to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., when the priesthood, the temple, the, the altars, and everything was taken away for those 40 years, the two covenants ran side by side, and the Lord allowed them to run side by side. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 21, when he got to Jerusalem, the uh, James there and the other apostles that were with James said, Brother, listen, if you go into that temple, you're going to cause an uproar because the Jews have heard everywhere that you're preaching against Moses. Would you mind taking a vow and going in there with your head shaved? So if they see you with your head shaved, they'll understand that you haven't altogether flushed Moses' law. No problem. Paul said, no problem. Because when Paul was with the Jews, he was like a Jew. And when... When Paul was with the Gentiles, he was like a Gentile. He wasn't, but if anybody would have pressed him, are you saying that Moses' law is binding for salvation? The Apostle Paul would have gone quickly to a pharmacy to get fast grow hair lotion. Because he would have wanted to prove that he wasn't 
saying that Moses' law was necessary for salvation, but if a person in their conscience wanted to go shave their head and take a vow, a Jewish vow, they could still do so. Peace lovers should love this subject. If you love peace, and I love peace, I love happiness, peace, love, unity, just having a good time loving the Lord with each other, nothing irritating, nothing threatening, nothing bad, everything good. I love peace. And I hope you love peace. And if you love peace, Romans 14 is for peace. Because it says in verse 17, which verse I hope you memorize by the time I get done teaching this chapter to you, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. After we do what God says and after we don't do what God condemns, then we ought to aim for peace among ourselves and we ought to aim for happiness in the whole church body. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost is ought to be our theme. Now, the Apostle Paul faced issues that we've got to realize. And if you read 1 Corinthians 8 last night, you saw the word meat several other times as well as here in this chapter. The issue, one, there's about four issues. One issue was that most of the meat, if you were to buy in the grocery store, had been offered to an idol. You know, you're living in a city, the city of Rome, the pagan pantheon. The pantheon is the whole collection of Roman deities that the Romans worshipped. And when, if you were a farmer and you brought your meat to market, you know, you would bring your oxen in and have them offered to Jupiter or one of the other deities of the Romans because the devil has always aped the Lord's religion. Right. Where'd they get the idea of killing animals as a sacrifice to a pagan idol? Where'd the idea come up from? You know, it's like other nations in the world that takes the inventiveness and creativity of the United States and just manufactures it at a lower price. Uh, so did the devil. He apes the Lord's worship. You know, the Lord ordered certain kinds of animals all the way back in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then with Noah on the ark, there were certain animals to be sacrificed to him. And certain parts were burned up in the fire and certain parts were eaten. Certain parts were given to the priests. Certain parts were taken home. Pagans did the same thing. So if you went to the store... You know, you're going to buy a cut of meat and it's going to have been offered to a pagan idol. Well, the Jews would just throw a tizzy. The Jews had been taught for their 1,500 years to hate idol worship. And their their nation had been punished for idol worship. And they had been taught that, that Jehovah was the only true and living God. And their parents had been taught that and their grandparents. And so they would throw a tizzy to see a Gentile just chowing down. And it could be reversed. Whenever I use Jew and Gentile... That is not the point that I'm trying to make to you. I'm just trying to say there is a division in the church. It could have been a Gentile who had worshipped Jupiter all of his life. Now he's converted to the Lord Jesus Christ and worshipping the only true and living God, the Lord Jehovah. And for him to see any other Gentile or any Jew eating meat offered to an idol just blew his mind. I thought we repented and changed our religion. What are you even giving one dollar into the coffers of anyone that raised beef that offered it to Jupiter? You can hear, you can hear it now, can't you? I can't believe that. That you're doing that. And so there's this conflict going on about meat offered to idols. Now there was also, and, and wine offered to idols. The wine was offered to idols as well. You know, if a, uh, A man who had a vineyard would bring a vintage in and offer some of it to the idols. You know, some of it would be drunken by the priest, some of it would be taken to market. But it would have been offered, this is my, this is my yield this year, O Jupiter. You know, sanctify, and he'd pour out a token amount of wine before the altar, and he would sanctify the whole vintage of his vineyard to Jupiter. It's not drinking wine the way that teetotalers have come up with the idea. In the, uh, the late, in the 1800s, because no one had that concept before the teetotalers came up with it in the 1800s. No one had thought about drinking wine being a bad thing. So it's not, when you read the word wine here, you read the word wine anywhere else, it's talking about wine being offered and sacrificed to idols. Now, where did that start with? It started with the drink offerings of the Jews. The Jews had drink offerings and heave offerings and wave offerings and grain offerings and meal offerings and meat offerings. They had all those offerings as well. And that's where it came from. And the pagans copied that. So when you see wine and you see drinking wine and you see meat in this particular context, it's been offered in sacrifice to idols. 
The Jews were also very sticky about some of their ceremonial days, some of the holidays that they had been taught in the law of Moses. And there's a, there's a bunch of them. There's new moons, and the Bible will refer to them this way, new moons and Sabbath days and years. You know, they had the year of release, and they had jubilees, and they had all these exciting things. And you know, a year of release was pretty nice, wasn't it? Pretty nice not to have to work, pretty nice to have all your debts wiped out every seven years. You know, and if you were a farmer to let your fields lie fallow for uh, the seventh year and, and hope that, after the New Testament, hope that God's going to cause the sixth year to bear twice as much as usual, which he didn't, because it went away. But they had done those things all their lives. Their calendar was marked, seventh year. We get to take a vacation, a long family vacation. You know, or, or uh, the, the year of Jubilee, the new moons, the months. That they had, you know, the, the tenth day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a monstrous event in Israel. The Passover was a huge event in Israel. And so a Jew, if you had practiced it for generations, it was practically in your DNA. And they, oh, they'd be, do you know what they would do if they saw a Gentile going to work? You know, if they happened to look out their window and see the Gentile biking his way to work with his lunch pail, knowing that he's going to go to work on the Day of Atonement, it would tear them up. This is the Day of Atonement. Haven't you read the Word of God? It says that it shall be a Sabbath to you forever. Does it say forever in the Old Testament? Does it say it twice? Does it say it ten times? Does it say it a hundred times? Does it say it a thousand times? Well, if it was forever, isn't it forever? It was forever as a conditional covenant. That was just a conditional covenant. If you disobey me, I'm going to tear the covenant away and I'm going to, I'm going to disperse you through the worlds, through the world, and I'm going to leave you. It was a conditional covenant the Lord used forever. Circumcision was forever. If you go read all the, the verses about circumcision, it was forever, but we know that it went away in the New Testament. The, the Passover was forever, but Jesus fulfilled the Passover. And so the poor Jew would have a problem with that. You know, eating unclean meat was very offensive to the Jews. They had never had a pepperoni pizza. They'd never had sausage or bacon for breakfast. They had never had ham for Easter. They hadn't celebrated Easter either. But they had celebrated the Passover, which is what Easter means when it's found in in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4. But the unclean meats were very offensive to the Jews, and you've got to think about it. They had Leviticus chapter 11, and you know that should probably be part of our reading over the next couple of weeks is to read Leviticus 11, to read Deuteronomy 14, which has the dietary codes for the Israelites. You know, they remembered the story of Daniel. Can you imagine being raised every year and being told the story of Daniel? Every year about Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. And he would not defile himself with the king's wine. He wasn't going to eat that stuff. He said, I'll drink water. And I'll have bean soup. I'll have lentil soup. And test us after 10 days and see how I look. Because he knew the Lord would perform a miracle for him not to defile himself. And so as a little boy, you're raised up and here now you're a 40-year-old man. You want to lead your family like Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you're in a church. And they ate together often in the New Testament. Will you think about this with me? The New Testament church ate together often eating their bread and their meat from house to house. Go read about it in Acts chapter 2. Can you imagine the turmoil in a church where this 40-year-old man who's going to be a Joshua, he's about to get zackified, and he's got to sit at a table where a, where a Gentile brings out this monstrous ham. You know, let's, let's do better than that. A roast pig. The whole pig is on the table, and he just hands out forks and knives. There's a curly little tail at one end and a big snout at the other end. And this poor Jew, oh, he hates pigs. Pigs are of the devil. Pig meat just doesn't digest in your body the same. Oh, yes, it causes cancer. It ain't the other white meat, as pork raisers want to call it. You ought to read the chapters that have been written by Christians on how the human body wasn't made to digest pork. I'm going to ask for, are there anybody, anybody in here over 40 years of age that have ever read Christian writings on the fact that the human body wasn't made to digest pork? Thank you. Thank you for a, a few honest souls, and I'll trust that the rest of you are just as honest. Uh, and I do. 
I didn't mean anything by that. It's unbelievable what they'll do. Because in the Old Testament, it wasn't right to eat pork, so God must have a reason that we shouldn't eat pork. And, but do you know what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4? Every creature of God is good and to be received with thanksgiving. So, so anybody want to buy me a pizza for lunch? I'll give God thanks, just like it says here in Romans 14. You can put on, you can put on it ham, pepperoni, bacon, and sausage. I like all four. Meat, meat lovers is what it's called. But, uh, you know, the meat lovers is all pork. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But can you imagine the turmoil in the church? At, at, every, at every break they took, every, every fellowship meal they had, the Gentiles would haul in anything they could think of. You know, they'd be having a shrimp appetizer and the poor Jew would walk in and there's all these little bottom feeders that uh, the Gentile has brought in and it would just tear them up. Do you know what kind of a lesson he could give you about a bottom feeder? Do you know what kind of a lesson he could tell you about what pigs eat? Could he tell you any lessons about that pigs will defecate in their own food and then eat that food? Can he tell you about what shrimp get off the bottom and catfish while the Gentile brings in a monstrous, monstrous catfish to follow his shrimp appetizer? And the poor Jew is just tore up. And I, I'm not trying to be light at all. I'm trying to make you think about the practical implications of this. And the Jew actually had the Bible on his side. But the Old Testament had passed away. That was difficult stuff. And yet he's the one that is called weak by the Apostle Paul. Then there were days. I've already mentioned the days. The, the, the days of the Jewish calendar. And then there were Jewish legalists running around that were constantly reminding the people that if you don't keep the law of Moses, you're on your, on your way to hell because the Old Testament taught do and live, do and live. So there's these Jewish legalists teaching this. And you know, the... The Jews that were in these churches were, were getting the emails and were getting the newsletters from these Jewish legalists telling them how important these things were and that they should not depart from the law of Moses because Moses had said, this is a binding covenant on me and my, God had said it on me and my people forever. It was, it was bad, it was bad times. It was hard. And they often ate together. Paul was incredibly flexible about these things until he'd get pressed in a, in a doctrinal issue and then he would draw the line. I hope that you'll think about the circumcision of Timothy in Acts chapter 16 because he was in an area with a lot of Jews and they knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. Paul went ahead and circumcised Timothy just to give him more appeal to the audiences he would be a preaching to. But when he was in Jerusalem with Titus who wasn't circumcised and the Jews there wanted to make it an issue of salvation, do you think the Apostle Paul was going to circumcise Titus? Not a chance. Right. Because they were going to take that and make it for a doctrinal precedent, and he wasn't going to allow any doctrinal precedents. What might be safely granted, if asked and given as a matter of indifference, becomes a fatal apostasy when it's demanded as a matter of necessity or condition of salvation. You know, if, if, if mothers in this church want to circumcise their little boys, I shouldn't say mothers, if fathers in this church want to circumcise their little boys, they have every right to do so. But if anyone in this church circumcised their little boys then made it a matter of religious value before God, we would have an apostasy heresy on our hands, and we couldn't handle that at all. I hope you can see the difference. I want to give you an acid test. This is what's been very helpful to me, although it hasn't been helpful to everyone that I've used it with because they've already made up their mind that they are going to hold to their little pet peeves no matter what. Here's a little acid test to consider this. If you think that you ought to do something, and it's of, it's of a, some sort of a religious nature, it affects your life and you're doing it to the Lord, and uh, you really wish everyone else would do it, it bothers you that, the, that other people in the church don't do it or they do do it and you don't do it. It doesn't matter which way that we look at it. Here's what you need to ask yourself. If the family of John Doe over here and his wife and his four children, perfect family, perfect church members, here every time we meet, full of charity, they bear all the fruit of the, of the Spirit, they love God, they love their neighbor, John Doe and his wife, but they don't do what I wish they did. Can you defend from the Bible and can you defend in your conscience that that family ought to be excluded and shunned by the rest of the church for not doing your little pet peeve. This is the acid test. Should that, should that family be excluded and shunned by this church because they don't do what you think 
ought to be done. See, if God's commanded something, they should be excluded and shunned. But if it's just you overpressing some issue, like meat or days, and the Jews had Bible, and you know what the shame is? Most matters of Christian liberty that we're going to have to think about, deal with, and I'm going to have to give you, don't have any Bible for them at all. Right. Or, it'll be some little verse here or there twisted out of its place and made to be a big giant hammer to beat people into some idea that they have for how life ought to be lived. Now the Jews had the whole Old Testament with thousands of references for meat, with thousands of references against idolatry or hundreds of references. But the acid test is, should a person be excluded? Now I've done this many times in my time as a pastor. I've asked this question, okay, you're just all upset, brother, about this particular issue and families in the church not doing it. Are you ready to stand and call for their exclusion? Well, no, no. Well, then it's a matter of liberty. Shut up. As soon as they say no, it's a matter of liberty. If you're not willing to stand and throw another family to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, then what they're doing is a matter of liberty. So let's commune with each other. Let's love each other. Lord, help us. What causes a person to go off in such tangents? Let me give you a few and just think about these and let's, let's Lord have mercy upon us. And if we're find ourselves in this list, take us out of this list. What causes a person to go off on tangents that God doesn't care about and raise divisive issues in a church that God doesn't care about? Partial or poor understanding of the Bible will lead to false interpretations and applications of the truth. They only know one little part of the Bible, like the Jews. They only knew the Old Testament. When John and Jesus came along and and changed the Old Testament and its ceremonial worship. But it's partial or poor understanding of the Bible. So all of us need to say to ourselves, do I know the Bible as well as I should to take a stand on this issue or should I just be quiet? A self-righteous attitude that you're special. That your ideas and rules make them better than others. There's different ways of expressing this and some of them are not fit for the pulpit. But it's a self-righteous attitude that you're special. And you know what? By nature, guess what? Let's be honest. Let's go ahead and say it. We all think that way. We're special. And so our ideas on how things ought to be done are better than other people's ideas on how things ought to be done, though God doesn't care because He really wants us doing His ideas. And His ideas are the ones that should be important. But a self-righteous attitude, a misunderstanding of true Christianity so that peace and joy are not very important to a person. They don't grasp that having a church happy and united and in peace is important. And it's very important. Blessed are the peacemakers. The Bible teaches over and over in different words. Number four, a substitute for their lack of true spiritual religion and the importance of a relationship with Christ. There are many Christians, and I've met them, that their own little agenda and their own little crusade for things and it's because of past teaching, is more important to them than a relationship with Jesus Christ. Usually when you talk to them, they're always talking about how bad the world is, how bad other churches are, and how many things are creeping in. But you will seldom have a conversation with them about the Lord Jesus Christ and how much they love Him and how much they want to sup with Him and how they want to be filled with all the fullness of God because they have all these little things irritating them that are in their craw and that's what they think about. And so they measure religion. Was there anybody in the Bible that did this? The Pharisees measured their religion by ticky-tacky little rules instead of their love of God. You know, Jesus would say, In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Oh, I better read it to you. Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and knives and cumin and have omitted the the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Jesus would rank the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith were more important. Treating people fairly. Treating people with mercy was more important than all their ticky-tack tithing rules. And Jesus would point that out. So for some, and it's a shame, it's a substitute, they measure their value to God 
not by their personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and being filled with all the fullness of God, but by a little list of ticky-tack rules that they don't think Christians should do. And Lord, save us from that. Let us exalt our relationship with Jesus Christ here and then our knowledge of the Word of God and we come right down the pecking order and when we get down low enough, somewhere in the nap of the carpet, we can find our ideas on how we ought to eat, drink, and live that are not found in the Bible. Number five, too much time in parachurch organizations that are built primarily on external matters of liberty outside of Jesus Christ. The reason parachurch organizations exist is to be parachurch. They're not churches, so they don't do what churches do. They deal with subjects that churches don't address because their emphasis is not spiritual. Their emphasis is natural. They're more worried about what you're doing in the world. They're more worried about what our country's doing. They're more worried about how your children date than they were, than they care about the things of walking in the, walking in, with God in fellowship with Him and the Lord Jesus Christ. Too much time in parachurch organizations or reading their literature. And, uh, you know, I could spend a lot of time on that and give names and so forth and so on, but I won't. We've seen them before and, uh, they're, they're distorted. They're not, they're not apostolic Bible Christians because they've had the emphasis twisted away from what the New Testament teaches and the emphasis there. See, if there's something that's not emphasized in the New Testament, do you know what it means? It's not important. You've got to trust the Bible. When the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be almost perfect, almost thoroughly furnished, except for some parachurch organizations, well, you've got a bad Bible version. It says that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. There is nothing missing from the Bible. So if you can't find it there, and if it's not repeated there, and if it's not emphasized there, God doesn't care. Lord, help us. Too much Internet time. You've been surfing too much on the Internet where people become weekend experts on issues that they want to impose on others. How long would it take me on the internet to find out that eating red meat is dangerous for your health? If red meat is eating dangerous, is dangerous for your health, then you're tempting God. If you eat red meat, you ought to be a vegetarian. Well, and I could say some more, but see, I'm holding back. I'm only, I'm only using ones that uh, you don't think are real. Because do you know what my purpose and my plan is? My plan of attack is the word attack appropriate for a minister to say about preaching? Amen. I'm attacking me too, trust me. Right. There's no one in the church that's more opinionated than your pastor. <laughs> but you know, when it comes down to our personal opinions, we've got to flush them. That's right. I have some very strong ones. Amen. And I was taught some very strong ones by an, an elderly gentleman sitting in this assembly who was my father. And sometimes when I hear things, it grates. But when I look in the Word of God and I can't find that it's taught there, though I might think there's an emphasis there, and though I might tell myself if a person was really spiritually minded, they would want to be thinking about, I just forget it. Amen. I just do it myself and try to show an example to my children for it. But you know, when they have their own homes, they can do whatever they wish because it's a matter of liberty. You know, too much time on the internet. You can get on that internet and find out that just about anything's wrong, bad, and terrible. And so you can be going and picking on everybody in here. Listen, there, listen. If you go check on the internet, you can find that every single thing is wrong. Right. And I can't, I can't start throwing out my list. Because my purpose, I was going to tell you, is simply to go through this chapter, understand it from Paul's perspective and the perspective of the Jews and Gentiles that were together in these churches, and I hope, by the leading of the Holy Ghost and us praying for this series of messages from Romans 14, by the time we get to the end, when I go through the list and I make some brief comments about each item in the list, that we can just say, you know what, this is easy. These aren't even as heavy and weighty as what the Apostle Paul had to deal with, and that we can be at peace and go on to chapter 15, the first seven verses of which deal with the same subject. But then it gets into praise for us Gentiles being included in the church. 
for which we should be very thankful. The internet can be very dangerous, my brethren. There's articles out there that can twist and use the Word of God to tell you that every single thing done by anyone that you know is evil. You know, some love to be different and have what they consider an edge over other Christians. It makes them a little special with God. That's, that's an, that's, that happens sometimes. The very false idea that the more conservative position on a subject is more godly. That is a very common one among the type of people that sometimes we associate with or read that the more conservative position is a better position. You know, if the Lord allows moderate use of something, well then if I just don't use it, I'm better because there's danger in that thing. So if I don't use it, I'm better. No, you're not. You're worse. You are dangerous. And you are what Jesus Christ had to fight his entire life. And your name starts with P. And the next letter is H. You're a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul in the Bible tells us the Pharisees were the straightest sect of the Jews' religion. They were the most conservative. The Sadducees were the libertarian, the libertines. The Sadducees didn't even believe there was anything. There was no spirit. There were no angels. They were just gone. They were what we would call the liberals. But it was the conservatives that gave Jesus all the trouble because of their little washing rules. Remember? And Jesus would say to them, it's not what goes into a man's mouth. He didn't care if his disciples washed their hands before they ate or not. It doesn't matter what goes into a man's mouth. It's what comes out of his mouth. What goes into his mouth goes into the sewer. He was very plain and blunt with them. The disciples came and pulled him aside and said, don't you know you just offended the Pharisees? They be blind, leaders of the blind. Let them both fall into the ditch. Every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. That is our Savior. That is how He taught doctrine. He made fun of them. Everything you put in your mouth comes out the other end and goes in the sewer. What are you worrying about that for? It's what comes out of our heart and comes out of our mouth that matters. But there are people that worry about what you put in your mouth. There are people that worry about what you put in your lungs. Uh Uh-oh. Did I just give one away? We'll have more to say. Don't. Don't anyone panic. Don't anyone panic and get up and leave. I have very strong opinions on them with you. But listen, we can't make something a we can't condemn something that the Bible hasn't condemned, and we can't command something the Bible hasn't commanded except in our own homes. Then we can take positions. Let me say that one again that being more conservative than the Word of God is better than the Word of God. Oh, I don't like you putting it that way. Well, just think about that. The more conservative position is the Pharisee position. Because God has given us liberty, and we should enjoy that liberty, and you should want others to enjoy that liberty. And if you personally don't want to enjoy that liberty, then you are depriving yourself, and that's okay with us. But don't deprive others. Teaching and agendas from other churches and pastors where Christianity is or includes witch hunting. You know, wanting to bring up this and wanting to bring up that, I mean, you'd be amazed. You can't buy gas from certain gas stations because the symbol that is out there over those oil pumps, I found an internet article that said it was associated with Zeus. If it Anybody ever been around ministers or ministries like that? (laughs) We have. We've heard it all. You know, don't you dare buy Procter & Gamble toothpaste because Procter & Gamble, when they get together for board meetings, they turn the lights out and worship the devil. You know, of course, the people... Anybody ever hear that one about Procter & Gamble? Oh, my (laughs) God. We're going to deal with... it'll, It'll be honesty in the next subject. Procter and Gamble. They've, they've had to deal with this for about 20 years yep. that they're devil worshipers. As long as they keep selling the best, tooth, best, tooth, the best toothpaste for the best price, more power to them. God doesn't care. Right. It's amazing what, uh oh, I'm getting ahead of myself again. There's a brother in here that I had a long talk with, and he said, You will not be able to do it. <laughs> And that is to get through the chapter without 
giving some things away, but I, I hope that a few little hints will help us be thinking, you know what? There are a bunch of extreme positions that people can take. Personal experiences with excess or abuse of issues that work up their emotions. Right. You know, if, if, uh, you had a, if, you, if your father was a drunkard, or your husband was a drunkard, or you had an uncle that was a drunkard, you know it's going to affect the way you look at alcohol. And so personal experiences, and it, and it twists a person how they view the Word of God, and it's just hard for them because they hate something so much, and it can be a whole array of subjects, I just used one, but they hate that so much because of their personal experience, they can't think about it rationally, they can't think about it reasonably in light of Scripture, and so they overreact. And Lord, help us from overreaction. We want the crown of the road. Do you know where the pain is put on the road? It's put on at the crown. Every road is at crowned, so that the water will run into the two ditches. We don't want to be in those ditches. We don't want to get away from the crown, because away from the crown is sloped toward those ditches. We want the crown of the road, Lord. Hold me back and hold this church back from varying from the double lines. Family habits or traditions are hard for some to think that they can, can leave because of familiarity and esteem of them, even though they're man-made. They're so used to them, and they, they love their mom and dad, and their mom and dad were very spiritually-minded people, and they love their grandparents, and they were very spiritually-minded people, and they did it, but that doesn't make it scriptural. A superstitious approach to religion that puts sacred value on practical matters that the Bible does not. Ignorance about danger, nature, safeguards, and temptations and factors of some liberty practices. You know, some people that don't know very much about a certain thing or activity or, or, or item of consumption uh, that other people might be using because they don't know much about it. They just assume that it's worse than, they, than it actually is because they don't know much, much about it. So it's ignorance again. The wiles of the devil who want to divide our church and cause trouble in our church on these matters of Christian liberty. So these are, these are 14 reasons of why it happens and how it happens. Lord, save us from it. Romans 14, very quickly, look at this verse. Verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. If a person comes to us and he's a Jew and he's, he can't eat meat. He can't eat meat because he won't eat pork because it was condemned by Moses. He won't eat beef because it was probably offered to Jupiter in Rome. The apostle Paul says, receive him. Take him in as a church member. But when you take him in as a church member, remind him there's not going to be any doubtful disputations in this church over the matter. The man that is weak here, the Apostle Paul is going to go on and describe, for one believeth that he may eat all things, in verse 2, another who is weak eateth herbs. This is a man reduced to vegetarianism because he can't eat meat condemned by Moses and he can't eat meat that might have been, possibly, it could have been, offered in sacrifice to idols. The Apostle Paul calls him weak, though he was a Jew and he had, this, he had a biblical position. But it wasn't the New Testament's biblical position. And see, the New Testament doesn't say you have to eat meat. The New Testament just says every creature of God is good and to be received with thanksgiving. If you can be thankful for pork, then enjoy it and be thankful for it and give God thanks. But you don't have to eat it. You can, you can say, I don't want to eat pork. That's okay. I'll offend you 100%. I've got your back. I'll offend you against the whole church if you never want to eat pork. But don't you ever bring it up in a discussion and try to convince anyone else in here not to eat pork. That's right. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. Someone who is distracted from the true importance of religion... Their, their focus is on the meat and drink of Romans 14, 17. Their focus is not the righteousness, peace, and joy. So they come into our church. They're weak. We can tell. We hear some little tidbits out of them while they're com communicating with us before they join. We'll receive them. But from me and from you and from all of us and from this sermon series, we're not going to have any doubtful disputations. Right. We are not going to allow you to cast doubt on our practices. We're not going to let you dispute with us about these matters that are outside of Scripture. And I'm going to give you the laundry list before we finish. We're not going to allow it because the Apostle Paul told us, the, the Apostle starts off in his very first verse on these issues that are not truly Christianity, but are outside Christianity, outside the emphasis of God's Word, outside His commandments, precepts, and statutes. You can be weak about them, but you can't talk about them. You can't promote them. You can't go on a crusade. You can't criticize us. You can't condemn us. You shouldn't despise us in your heart. All these things that this chapter warns about. And listen, let's be honest. 
Every single one of us has these. Don't anyone be thinking about anyone else in here. We all have them. We all have them. So let us all read the verse. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. You know, we despise the word weak. I'm thinking to myself right now in my flesh, but I'm not weak on that matter. Anybody else? I'm not weak on that matter. I'm strong. But if it's not in the Word of God, you're weak. You know, if the emphasis isn't there, we're weak. And so, Lord, we're going to keep those things to ourselves. I hope, listen, I don't need to spend a lot of time on these verses. Is that verse, does that verse need a lot of time? Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. We're going to receive all kinds, all types, all kinds of baggage. They're going to have so much junk from their past, just like we have so much junk from our past. How do I even know about eating pork? Oh, I know a whole lot more than eating pork. But we're just going to let all that stuff go. I love the verse. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. The Lord tells us what to do with weak brothers. Receive them. We're going to embrace them. Before we get done with Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to love them. And listen, if what's, if something that we're doing offends them and could hurt them and could cause our weak brother to perish, I will not eat meat or drink wine while the earth stands. Didn't the apostle say that? He did. Because we're going to love them. So when it says receive them, it's not associate members. It's bosom buddies. Right. Receive them. But not to doubtful disputations. I'm not going to try to hurt you for what you where you stand on your issues. I'm not even going to bring it up. I'm just going to love you because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ loves you. And I'm not going to let these things divide us like they divide so many churches. It, it, it is just, it causes me to tremble and it should cause you to tremble that people come together at the Lord's Supper, which is called communion. And what does communion mean? What does the word communion mean? Common union. But our common union is not about all these extraneous things. Our common union is about the Lord Jesus Christ. But they come and they're divided. They're despising. They're resenting. There's cliques in some churches about these different things. We don't want any of that. We're just going to receive each other and come to the Lord's table. For one believeth that he may eat all things. There's a Gentile. It could be a Jew. could be a Gentile. It doesn't matter. So let's, I may even take that away, though it's helpful. And I've already, I've already given the helpful part. If you think about the Bible that they had, if you think about their tradition, if you think about their family habits, if you think about the only thing they've ever known in their lives, they do not have, they do not have a tongue that loves the salty nature of pork products. We do. They, they don't have any of that. So they don't, they don't care. And you know, they want to, but they wanted to impress Moses' commandment against pork on the rest of the church. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Here's a guy scarfing down meat that's been offered to an idol. Here's a guy scarfing down pork. One believeth that he may eat all things. He believes that God's given him the liberty to do that. Another who is weak eateth herbs. He's become a vegetarian because he's so afraid of the meat that is in the Roman markets. Either it's pork or some other animal that he can't eat because of Leviticus chapter 11, or it's been offered to an idol. So out of fear of even touching something to do with an idol, or it's been in the same plant... You know kosher rules? If it's been in the same plant where a pig was butchered, can't touch it. So he eats herbs. Is that okay in the church of God that everybody in the left-hand side of the church, the left-hand side of the church eats anything and those on the right-hand side are vegetarians? Can they still come to the Lord's table and love each other? Oh, Lord, help us. Because it doesn't matter what they eat and what they don't eat as long as they love the Lord Jesus Christ, because God doesn't care about those things. Verse 3, Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. Can, this is the Lord addressing a church where one half of them ate everything, and the other half had turned into vegetarians. Don't despise each other and don't judge each other. For God hath received him. Right. I what? 
is the antecedent for this pronoun. For God hath received him. (laughs) I love the word of God. Sometimes there's just little things that the Lord does. For God hath received... Why doesn't it say them? Because it's a whole individual matter back and forth across the aisle of two different camps that the church holds about eating. Because him has been mentioned four times. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. Let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. There's four hymns. That is the antecedent for the pronoun him that is in the final clause of verse 3. For God hath received him. You mean God's received one side? Oh, no, 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 no. God's received both sides and God's received every individual on both sides. I love the Bible. Why doesn't it say God hath received them? Because you'd start saying, it's me, not them. But it's him. And it's so vague. It's inspired ambiguity to apply to every single individual. I just love the Bible. I love the Bible. I've had a session with the Lord in recent days that I love this more than I ever have before. And I will spend the rest of my life on this book, standing on this word, one word at a time, exactly what it says, and I don't care about anything else. And it's not because of Christian liberty. It's just looking at the whole book and telling him, I don't know where else to stand. I see so much confusion. All, all, the only thing I trust is your word. Amen. And I trust this third verse. I love it. God hath received him. Isn't that exciting? God doesn't care whether we're vegetarians or we eat pounds of meat a week. He's received us. How has he received us? Through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and his life to ever intercede for us at the right hand of God. Right. That's how he received us. And because of our conversion and humility and submission and repentance to the gospel, when we heard it, He has received us in a practical way. He has not received us because of what we eat or don't eat. He has not received us because we despise or judge others. He has not received us because of our self-righteousness. He's received us because of our humility, our repentance, and our submission to Him. Verse 4, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master, he standeth or falleth, period. First sentence of verse 4. Who do you think you are judging another man's servant? Now, this is a rule from employment in those days. If you had a few servants and your neighbor had a few servants and his neighbor had a few servants, it wasn't your place to go tell that master you got a bad servant because that servant took off at 5 o'clock while your servants worked till 6. Well, the, the terms of employment, the terms of servitude, with that particular neighbor might have been till five o'clock. Who are you to say that that servant is lazy? He may have started an hour earlier in the dark in the morning that you don't know about. Right. It isn't your place to criticize that neighbor for his servant. This is a rule in the Old Testament. It's a rule of nature. It's a rule of nations. It's none of your business what a man does with his own property. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? Why would you walk down the road and see some servant out there and yell, you got a lazy servant because he was resting on his pitchfork for five minutes? You didn't know that he started at midnight. And he's taking a little break after his 14th hour at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? How many of you walk into restaurants and want to tell the management you've got some lazy employees? I know half of you do, and the pastor does. But should we? No, we shouldn't. Because if you see them talking a little bit, they may have just had a carry-out order of 2,000 sandwiches, and they just worked four hours faster and harder and more intensely than you have ever worked in your life. And that master is letting them have a few minutes of leisure before the lunch rush. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. If he stands, then that means he's in the approval of his master. If he falls, then that means he's under the censure or judgment of his master. Who art thou that's trying to judge? It's up to his own master. Now just enjoy the first half. The better, the second half's better of this verse. I love this verse. And it's perfect to end on for this first assembly today. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master. He standeth or falleth. On the job, you're only accountable to your own master. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about your work habits. 
It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about the quality or the quantity of your work. It's what your master thinks. It's the one that you're working for. That's what matters. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. We are still dealing with a singular male pronoun from the third and the fourth verse. Who are you to pick on another man whose master is the Lord Jesus Christ and the God of heaven? Yea, he shall be holden up. He shall, he shall be, yea, he shall be holding up for God is able to make him stand. While you're wanting to criticize him because he's eating what you won't or he won't eat what you do and you're wanting to despise him and you're wanting to judge him. I'm going back to verse three. You're wanting to judge him. You're wanting to despise him. You shouldn't be judging another man's servant and all Christians in a church like ours. Who is our master? The Lord Jesus Christ and the God of heaven. And do you know what the God of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ can do? He shall be holden up because he's already received us. Remember the last part of verse 3? For he hath received him and it is still dealing with singular male pronouns because it's taking care of each one of us at a time. No one in this church is going to sit in judgment on anyone else in this church for a matter of liberty. We are going to defend every member of this church equally against any despising or any judgments about matters of Christian liberty. Yea, he shall be holden up. God's received him, and God's going to hold him up. Through faith, by the power of the Holy Ghost, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. He does not need your little ticky-tack pet peeves about how a person should live. He needs the Lord Jesus Christ who's already received him, verse 3, and the power of God that's able to make him stand before God. God God keeps us all by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's what's intended by these verses. And they're wonderful verses here. The last part of verse 4 is just wonderful. Yea, he shall be holding up. You know, he's left the metaphor of the first half of the verse, which is just a metaphorical, parabolic description of a law that exists in the employment world. You don't judge another man's servant. It's that man's master that determines whether he has done something that's to be approved or he's done something that's to be criticized or judged. What are you doing the judgment for? It's that master. And then leaving that and applying it to the men that are under consideration one at a time from verse 3. Yea, he. God hath received him, and yea, he, that is the one that God hath received, shall be holden up. God's going to hold him up. God's not going to lose a single one of us. Everyone that the Lord Jesus Christ died for shall be saved with an everlasting salvation. Romans 8.32 How shall he... How, oh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 is, who is he that, uh, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? The Lord Jesus Christ would say, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to lose no one. The Lord Jesus Christ says in John chapter 10, no man can pluck them out of my hand, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. He would say, Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? That the man's going to stand because God is able to make him stand. God is able to hold him up because God has received him and he doesn't need your little ticky-tack rules. And it doesn't matter if you judge him because it's all that matters is the Lord judges each of us. The Lord's going to hold us accountable. But the Lord is going to ha- has the Lord Jesus Christ covering all our sins. And so we have Romans 14.4. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up. You can't say that about the metaphor in the first half of the verse. Because how do you know that it wasn't a servant that's going to fall? He's going to get fired. Because we're jumping back to verse 3. It's the hymn that was received by God already. 
And so you shouldn't be despising him, and you shouldn't be judging him. Yea, he shall be holden up. This man that you're despising, you're looking across the aisle in the church at Rome, and you're despising them because they just, they just gorge on pork. They're having ham sandwiches practically every day. Don't they know that ham's bad for your health? Don't they know that ham's condemned in Leviticus 11? You're despising them. Then they look across the aisle and, you pitiful little weak things. I don't even know if you're a Christian. Can't even figure out the fact that you can have pork. You still clinging to Mount Sinai? We're at Mount Zion. You've never heard any thoughts like these, have you? But look at what the Lord says. Yea, who art thou that judgest across that aisle? Who are you judging someone else in the church on a matter of liberty? Who are you? Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. No one's going to fall because...